The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, and much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And so let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we bow this morning as your people. Thank you that we can come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. I pray for our church family at large with so many more people, even in the last week, getting COVID. That you would watch over us and protect us. Pray for our brother Steve, who is fighting this morning. May you be gracious to him. May you intervene. He's useful to me for the kingdom. And I know to you, we pray that you continue to bless him. We pray for ourselves that we would walk in obedience, that we would seek the word the way King David just described it. Thank you that we can know you through creation for your invisible attributes, your eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen by what you've created. Thank you that we see your work and your compassion and that you cause the rain to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous and the rain to fall on both. But thank you for the infallible, inerrant, eternal word in which you have revealed so much to us. And so we come and ask that you would have freedom today to speak to each and every heart, to each and every listener, wherever they may be. May you help me, may you fill me, that all who will hear the message today or in days and years to come would be encouraged and blessed, and that together we might grow to the fullness that belongs to Christ. And I ask it in his holy name, amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the epistle of James, James chapter 1. If you are joining us for the first time, we have been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse. It's just 108 verses, and I've encouraged you to read it once a week until we complete the book. Uh, it's a short read, but the more you read it, the more you will see how it fits together. My goal is that if you get picked with a pin, that you will bleed the book of James by the time we're done. Now, you can't help but know James to some degree because it's one of the most quoted books in the Bible. Pastors repeatedly will come to it because James has probably more application, direct application, than any other single book in the Bible. So in some ways, you feel like you know it, but I want you to see how it all fits together that our lives would be changed. James chapter 1, you can see the topic for this morning is how to hear God's Word, and I don't mean simply with your physical ears. Let's begin in verse 19 where we left off last time. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. There was an article that appeared in one of the most popular news magazines in the nation some years back that caught my attention. It was a blistering, scorching, vicious attack on the Sunday school in what we call the Adult Bible Fellowship Hour. It was entitled, The Most Wasted Hour of the Week. And I tended to agree with the author with the exception that I think he missed it by one hour. Because it's altogether possible that the worship service, when a pastor opens the Word of God, is the most wasted hour in America if, if, and I say if, you hear the Word of God with your physical ears but not with your spiritual ears. If you are confronted by the truth but you are not changed by the truth. People often come to church to approve the sermon rather than to be approved by the sermon. Now, I understand that God didn't give you the Scripture just to satisfy your curiosity. He gave us the Word of God to make us more like Christ. He didn't give us the Word to make us smarter sinners, but to conform us into the glory of God. And so James asks and answers a question in this portion of Scripture, does the Word of God change lives? And his answer is, depends on your response to it. If the Word of God is truly heard, which will mean it will be genuinely obeyed, then it will indeed change your life. And so the real issue for James is not how much you know, but how much you obey what you know. And so James writes this letter for a couple of reasons. One, to weed out those who say they are Christians but are not. Though that's not his principal audience as we will work through this book, his principal audience is not unbelievers but believers to wake them up because they are not maturing in Christ as they ought. That's the primary focus of the letter. Now, some of you have told me you've read it every week. Some have said, I've read it four times, five times a week. That's fantastic. Well, as you read through it over and over and over again, you will discover that there are three principal divisions. Chapter 1 deals with the development of faith, and he highlights three problems. First, the problem of pain as we learn to endure trials. Then he deals with the problem of temptation, 
And that is followed by the problem of not applying the scriptures to our lives. James wants us to know that if we are to be successful in dealing with trials and temptations, that that is indexed to our response to obey God's Word. Then in chapters 2 through 4, as you can see on this chart, we come to the second division of the book, and he deals with the distortion of faith. And he does so by looking first at our testimony, secondly at our tongue, and then third at things that we ought to avoid. First, our testimony, then our tongue, and then three things that we ought to avoid, quarrels and conflicts, unjust judgment towards one another, and presuming on the future. When you come to chapter 5, you come to the third section of the epistle, the display of faith. Now, that's the broad context. Let me set the immediate context for our passage. Here in the opening chapter, again, the focus is on the development of our faith. In verses 1 through 11, he deals with the subject of trials. Trials are an inevitable part of life. Saved or lost, all people will experience trials. But God wants to use those trials to change us, to mature us. And he has argued that if we consider it joy, if we calculate, that's a mathematical term, it to be good for us such that we can deem it to be potentially joyful, and we let that trial have its perfect result, then we will become mature through it. But then if you remember, when you come to verse 12, um, this half-brother of the Lord Jesus, James, turns the corner a little bit, and he moves from the subject of trials to temptation. And we saw that verse 12 is somewhat of a hinge verse. It not only looks back, but it looks ahead. And so in verses 13 through 15, most of us at least know those three verses. He gives us a picture of the anatomy of sin. He speaks of LSD, lust, sin, and then death. And then when you come to verse 16, he gives a strong warning. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, Satan is the great deceiver, and he uses temptation and the sin that it can potentially yield to get us to think that God has gypped us, that God is ripping us off, that what he will give us is something better. That's been his uh, modus operandi from the very beginning. And so verse 16, it looks in both directions. It begins, do not be deceived. James is warning us that we are not to be deceived by blaming God for our sin. Why? Because God never tempts us. Why, you ask? Because one, it's contrary to his person. He says here, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And secondly, it's contrary to his purpose. He himself does not tempt anyone. Satan is the great deceiver, but God is the great deliverer. His interest is in our obtaining victory. God does not tempt you because the Scripture says when we are tempted, we are carried away by our own lust, and when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin has been come about, it brings forth death. For the born-again Christian, that means a loss of fellowship, a loss of intimacy with God. For the lost man, eternal death, ultimately eternal retribution and the place of divine punishment. But verse 16, if you will notice, also looks forward um, because neither are we to cast suspicion on the goodness of God because if God does not tempt, then what precisely does he do? Well, he tells us he gives good and perfect gifts. Look at verse 17. Every good thing given And every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So James is using irrefutable logic. He gives us a major premise that God is good, and therefore he gives nothing but perfect gifts. And secondly, his minor premise is that God never changes. He is the same as the writer to the Hebrews says, yesterday, today, and forever. So every one of us, we need to run that through our thinking. When the world entices us, and Satan is the God, small g, of this world, energizing this world, when it entices us to go its way, remember, it offers nothing but death. And remember who God is, because his ways are only for our good. And so to drive home the point, he gives an example. Do you remember it in verse 18? In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. We noted last time that this speaks of the second birth. The King James renders this, he begat us. The Net Bible says, by his sovereign plan, he gave us birth. Why? Because salvation is not the work of man, it is the work of God. By his doing, Paul will say, you are in Christ Jesus. You didn't come to Christ because you first sought him. You came to Christ whether you were four or 40 because he first sought you. It was God coming after Adam when he asked, where are you, Adam? And so the cross was no afterthought as we studied in the Revelation series. We are told in Revelation 13 and verse 8 that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. That is, it was in the heart and mind of Almighty God because He's omniscient, because He knows the beginning and the end, because He saw what man would do. It was in God's heart to redeem us. Ever before the tree was planted that Christ would hang on, God knew what He was going to accomplish for us. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so it says, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. Again, he's been using these birth analogies, and now he uses this illustration in two realms, as we'll see this morning, just as there are two parents in physical birth, there are two parents in spiritual birth. On the one hand, the Bible says in passages like first, uh, like John 3 or 1 Corinthians 12 that you're born again by the Spirit. On the other hand, the Bible teaches that you're born again by the Word of God. And that's what he is referencing here. God's word was the divine, imperishable seed that brought about the second birth. And it all happens how? In the exercise of his will. No one can take credit for coming to Christ on their own, and no one can take any credit for introducing someone to the Savior. It is a sovereign work of God Almighty. I'm not dismissing free will but it is a sovereign work of God. And why did God do all this? Notice, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. And we studied this beautiful Jewish imagery because he's writing to the 12 dispersed tribes who understood the feast of first fruits. And we saw the significance of that imagery last time. Now, James knows that if we are to respond properly to either trials or to temptations, then we must respond properly to the Word of God. Now, please understand, just as the Spirit of God 
brought about a second birth. The Spirit of God used the Word of God to accomplish that. And he is going to drive home that point in verses 19 through 27. He is going to teach us how to listen to God's Word, because not only is the Word of God the instrument for the second birth, it is the same instrument the Spirit of God uses in the process of sanctification and making us like Christ. So James is going to really give us a sermon on how to hear a sermon. How do we hear the Word of God? Many individuals have heard thousands and thousands of sermons in their lifetime. But James wants you to hear a sermon on how to hear a sermon. Now, if you're taking notes, let me give you the outline. In case you fall asleep, you'll know where we are. He begins with an introduction. He gives an exhortation. He follows it with an illustration, and he concludes with an application. So let's begin with James's introduction. Before he constructs his argument on how to listen to his sermon, how to hear the Word of God, he first has to lay a foundation. And so verses 19 and 20 are like a thesis statement. He begins, this you know, my beloved brethren. The English Standard Version renders it, know this, my beloved brethren. The NASB 2020 that will come out in paper next month says, this you know, my um, beloved brothers, and then italics it adds, and sisters, because it's implied. This is a generic word, brothers and sisters. Now, in most of our English translations, it reads like an indicative statement. If you remember ninth grade English, maybe it was eighth grade, some of us had modern English, and so just like we had modern math, and so the Bible is a little bit more challenging for us to read, and And many uh, students today who go to seminary, they have to learn basic English grammar in order to learn Greek first. But this is an indicative statement. Uh, At least that's how it reads. It reads like an indicative, a statement of fact. But in the original, this is not an indicative statement. This is an imperative. And the ESV captures that. Know this. It's It's a command. He's commanding us. You need to get this. You need to know this. You need to get this straight. He's telling us to pay attention. Well, what do you want us to know? Look at verse 19. This you know, or know this, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Notice the pattern, quick, slow, slow. So first, we are to be quick to hear, point A there on your outline. Now, obviously and unfortunately, many of us are quicker to speak than we are to hear. But if you looked at yourself in the mirror this morning, you will notice you have one mouth and two ears, and by design. But the problem with many of us is we talk more than we listen. Now, while you are listening to God's Word, I hope you're not talking to someone else, either reaching over and whispering or cutting a joke or talking to friends, texting and emailing and all those things that happens in church every week. And I certainly hope you're not just talking to yourself, planning the menus for the week, thinking about some business deal, what you're going to do this afternoon, just talking over in your own mind what you want to do. You're not really listening. Think about the things you're passionate about. How do you listen when you're passionate about something? How do you read an article when you're passionate about something? Sadly, many of us are more passionate about things that are very temporal, 
that have no significance in eternal value. Solomon reminded us, even a fool keeps silent. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. In any field of knowledge, you learn not by speaking, but by listening. With that said, don't take it out of the context and go home and say, wife or husband, I've got a verse for you for our life and our marriage. You need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Listen, that may be a legitimate application in some marriages, but understand in the context, it's in our response to the Word of God. It's very possible to have great exposure to the Scripture and hearing it preached or taught or read without really hearing it. It's like the guy who faithfully does his Bible reading, you know, three chapters a day to keep the devil away, to get through the book in a year. And he's reading, but he's not really hearing. He just advances the bookmark, and if you ask him later in the day what those three chapters were about, he couldn't tell you if his life depended on it. When we hear God's Word, we are to really hear it. That's what He wants us to do. And He recognizes that you may be going through difficult trials this morning. You may be facing some real live temptation. But if you are to be successful, then you have to have a right relationship to the Word of God. You may be listening to everyone else and everything else, but he wants you to listen to this word. So he begins with, we are to be quick to hear. Notice secondly there, point B on your outline, we are to be slow to speak. We are to be slow to speak. Let me keep reading verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, or know this, again, it's a command, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak. Now, too many times Christians are ready to comment or to give their opinion without really being here, hearing what's taught if not audibly, at least mentally, before they've really truly heard. Over the years, I've seen people get up and leave. Usually it happens at least once or twice a month. And occasionally I find out why they left. Yeah, one of the ushers said, everything okay? No, Pastor, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes, on a few occasions, I've actually had a chance to speak with the individual or individuals. And the conclusion that they came to as to what I was saying was actually the exact opposite. And if they had just waited just a little bit longer, another minute or two, they would have come to a different conclusion. But many times, either verbally or in our minds, we are quick to speak, and we don't really hear what God has to say. And so these adjectives here, you should circle them quick, slow, Slow, quick, slow, quick, slow, slow. They don't describe our action. They describe our attitude. We are to be slow to speak. We are to be slow to talk back. That's the idea. And there are many times when you may not like what the Scripture is presenting you, and you want to argue. You want to rationalize. And remember, a rationalization is nothing more than a rational lie. It's like you say to the child, sit down. And they sit down, but on the inside, they are standing up. And sometimes we are sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, we are arguing with God. Hey, listen, don't get mad at me. I'm just the messenger boy. 
Don't take your argument out with me. James recognized that people would get angry. No wonder he prefaced it with words like, my beloved brethren. He's saying, I love you. Don't get mad at me. I'm here to tell you the truth, even if it's difficult. It may be inconvenient. It may be incompatible with your lifestyle. But before you argue it or rationalize it away, let God truly speak to you. A young man once approached the famous Roman orator Socrates. Many a man in that century wanted to be discipled by him. And he went to convince Socrates why he should take him on as a student. And with this incessant flow of words, finally, Socrates put his hand over the boy's mouth and he said, young man, to instruct you in oratory, I will have to charge you a double fee. When the young man asked why, Socrates is recorded as saying, because I have to teach you two skills, the first on how to hold your tongue and the second on how to use it. (laughs) My brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot speak and learn at the same time. We are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and again, the order is very, very significant. When I look out at this auditorium in these two services, The last service, we had 35 states, four countries live streaming with us. And I think about all the different businesses and families and neighborhoods and battalions and all the different spheres of influence that each of us have. I get excited and I think, what could God do for his glory to advance his kingdom if we have something to say? But do we really have something to say, something to speak? James wants us to have something to say. So first, he says we are to be quick to hear. Secondly, we are to be slow to speak. But third, we are to be slow to anger. He says everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And the word here, anger, is orge. And it's an interesting word because it's not used of an explosive external anger, but it's used repeatedly in the New Testament of a settled smoldering, internal kind of anger that sometimes only you and God are aware of. Question, why does he mention the need to be slow to anger? For the obvious reason in the context, if you get angry at the Word of God, you won't be changed by the Word of God. And again, his emphasis here is on those who hear the truth, that they can potentially resent the truth in attitudes and actions on the inside. Listen, when I sat under a surgeon's knife a few years ago, I didn't say, don't do that. I let him cut on me. Why? Because I know the cutting would bring healing. And listen, God's Word is like a double-edged sword. It cuts. It goes to the depth of the marrow in the bone. And you're not to argue with God. I know so well what the Apostle Paul says when he writes to the church at Galatia, and he says, So have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? I get hateful letters. And by the way, if you send me one and you don't sign it, that's the first thing I look for. I just throw it in the basket. I don't even read it. But I get hateful letters and emails and things at my website by people, not from y'all, most of y'all would never do that to me, but from people who, I'm not their pastor. 
and they have total freedom, they feel, to crucify me. But what they're really angry at is not me. When they postulate their argument for anger, I think what you're arguing about is what God has said. Listen, the Word of God pricks, it cuts, it convicts, and sometimes we want to guard ourselves. So why is it important that we guard ourselves from anger and not from the truth of God's Word? He gives us the answer. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The living translation paraphrases that human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Now, anger can be very subtle, and some of you are too spiritual to say, well, I don't really ever get angry with God's Word, when all the while you're arguing in your mind with some of the things you're hearing. You say, that's just Brogy's opinion, and you haven't really examined it contextually and carefully studied to see, is that what God is saying? And so James doesn't want us to get angry with the Word. He wants us to respond to it. And so he's laying the foundation here on how to hear the Word of God. Because before you can construct a superstructure that's worth anything, you don't build it on the foundation of a chicken coop. You need a strong foundation. According to two of America's leading pollsters, George Bonner and the Garnet Gallup Group, they say today there is very little difference between the moral and spiritual standards of believers versus those who do not confess Christ. And I suppose much of that is because the seeds are being planted for the great apostasy, the great falling away, the apostasy of all apostasies that the Antichrist will bring. And so there's a lot of people in our churches who really aren't saved. The biggest wake-up call in all of human history will come when people stand before the Lord who claim to know Him, who had all the externals, who jumped through all the hoops, and He will say, I never knew you. But then there are those who are like the church at Ephesus who have left their first love. And remember, the church at the end of the age will be characterized by lukewarmness. That's why our impact is lessening and lessening, because our light is becoming duller and duller, and our saltiness is becoming unsavory. Or we are neither hot nor cold like the church at Laodicea. But if God's work, word is in your life, you'll be different. But you see, people don't want to hear God's word anymore. They want a Joel Olstein kind of Christianity, a cruise ship kind of Christianity, I call it. The church is not to be a cruise ship. We're to be a battleship. We are to be changed and not like the world. And the reason we are having so little impact on the world is because we're so much like the world. And sometimes pastors say, well, I just want to be relevant. And I tell them, if you want to be relevant, then preach the Word of God because that is what is true. So James is an incredibly practical man, and he knows that we might deem ourselves to be religious or spiritual because of the amount of knowledge that we've stored up, or maybe even because at times we feel convicted. But he's going to tell us before this chapter is finished, and he's going to expand it in the chapters to come, that if I am really religious, if I am really spiritual, number one, I'll have control over my tongue. Number two, I will have a servant's heart of compassion. And number three, I will become cleaner and cleaner in a world that is getting dirtier and dirtier. Before we're out of the first chapter, 
he's going to give us three evidences, genuine proofs of a changed life. Now, that's the introduction. Beyond the introduction, let's move now to James's exhortation, his exhortation. I hope you're listening carefully. James's exhortation, verses 21 and 22. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's very easy to be deceived, and sometimes as Christians we become self-deceived or deluded. We think that just because we've heard a sermon preached and taught that we've really heard. And that's why Jesus repeatedly says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's entirely possible for the Bible to go through your physical ears and not really to touch your life. And so the Apostle James here in his exhortation gives us three simple principles on how to really hear a sermon. Three words, let me give them to you. They all begin with the letter R. The first word is the word remove. Remove all known sin. Remove all known sin. Now watch carefully. Before James gives his positive command, he gives us a negative command. He pictures the human heart like a garden. And he tells us before the Word of God can really be heard, then the hindering sins in the heart must be dealt with. You must receive the Word implanted. We have to remove the weeds, as we're going to see in a moment, to receive the Word implanted. There has to be a weeding out before there can be a seeding in. In our first home, the gentleman across the street was an elderly man, and I said, John, I, I just wish I could get my front garden to look like yours. He said, I, I've just got just so many weeds I'm fighting all the time, and you know, I had a few flowers, and he said, well, one, you got to do a thorough weeding, and then you do a superseding. He said, I've got so many flowers in my front garden, there's no room for any weeds. Well, listen, there has to be a removal, there has to be a weeding out so that there can be a seeding in. Look at verse 21, therefore, putting aside all filthiness. And interestingly, the word here for filthiness is literally a medical term that means wax in the ear. Now, don't forget, God wants us to be quick to hear. And if there is filth or wax, spiritual wax in the ear, then you won't really be able to hear. Do you know why sometimes God never really speaks to you? You have a quiet time, you come to church, and you're unchanged? It's because your spiritual ears are plugged. And the Greek term, wax, is used metaphorically in a number of different spots in the New Testament to describe moral uncleanness or impurity. And I find it interesting that he is reminding us we need to put away these acts of wax, these acts of sin, we need to make sure the heart is clean. And that's why very often when we begin our sermon, yes, we still do a pastoral prayer. Someone said that's outdated and outmolded, in your opinion. Mm. We have a pastoral prayer each week. And for many of us, if we haven't already settled it, that's a good time to make sure our heart is clean and clear as we open the Scripture. But he adds here in verse 21, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. 
The word wickedness, unlike the first word filthiness that speaks of moral uncleanness on the outside, this word is repeatedly used to deal with a moral corruption on the inside, not just with outward actions, but inward attitudes. James is saying that spiritual maturity can only take place if there's a putting away of certain externals and there is a repentance of certain internals. And that's the point of genuine confession. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Not a salvation verse, as most of you know. That's a verse written to people who are already saved. It's not a promise for those who are lost to get saved. If that were true, Christ never would have had to have died. He could have just said confess. It's written to the beloved that they might have fellowship with John and his fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And so whenever you confess and forsake our, your sin, you're cleaning out the spiritual wax in your ears and then you will be able to really truly hear. You say, well, it's just a little sin. There are no little sins in God's economy. Every sin, however big or small you may deem it to be, can break fellowship with the living God and stifle your spiritual growth. Do you remember what King David said in Psalm 24? Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Of course, the hill of the Lord in his day was the Temple Mount. If you've been to Jerusalem, you see the Temple Mount. That's where the temple was built. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? For him, the tabernacle stood up there. And who may stand in his holy place? And what was his answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and who has not sworn deceitfully. I hope you're listening today because I really want you, and more importantly, God wants you to know and to understand that a filthy heart will hinder your growth. And I'm telling you, there's nothing in the culture that will contribute to your spiritual growth in this day. There's more filth and wickedness like we've never seen in the history of our nation. Television programs, movies that people download, internet sites that they linger at, music with ungodly messages. And you think, well, you know, just a little filth in it. No big deal. It didn't affect me. The devil's already won. There must be no moral compromise. And when there is, there's dullness of hearing. Forty years ago, really 45 years ago, when I was a new Christian, 46 years, I guess, we used to sing a little chorus, fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Some of you may remember it. But we were singing it all wrong. We should have said, cleanse my cup, Lord, I messed it up, Lord. The cup needs to be cleansed on the outside and on the inside in order to hear God's Word. So the first word is received. The second word, I mean, the first word you've got is removed. The second word is receive. Receive the Word implanted. Receive the Word implanted. Look now at verse 21. Further, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the Word implanted. 
Now, the word receive is a Greek word that means to welcome or to embrace. It's a word that's used outside of the New Testament of someone that you would welcome and embrace into your home. And here he says, in humility, receive the word implanted. Now, we need to ask an important question. How do you receive something that's already implanted within you? When a pastor preaches, he's not to preach his own thoughts and opinions, but the Scripture. And when he preaches the Scripture, he's implanting God's Word into your heart. The planting of the seed takes place, but the Word of God is living and active and sharper. And so you are to welcome it. You are to water it. You are to respond to it and tend to it and pay attention to it. And so to do that, he says there must be an attitude of humility. And humility receive the word implanted. Years ago, my ability to hear a sermon was revolutionized, and that when I went to a church, and I don't get to do it very often, where I get to go to a church and we'd be able to sit together as a family, and it was always a blessing when we could, but my ability to hear a sermon was revolutionized, and that I would try to hear the sermon like I was the only person in the auditorium. See, so often people hear sermons and they'll come, I wish so-and-so were here today. You know, they're kind of vicarious sermon listeners. What does God say to you? What does he want to say to you? Forget someone else. Now, true, sometimes I've been in churches and they, they read a text and then they never refer back to it. And so I'll open the Scripture and I'll examine a passage for myself. If he's going to talk about nothing, I'm going to at least read something. But if the pastor is reading and teaching the Word of God, I don't care who he is. I want to hear what he has to say. I may have just preached the sermon a week before. But God, what do you want to say to me? Suppose a rich relative dies and you know that you're in the will. And you're invited to hear a reading of the will. What are you going to be listening for? You're going to be listening for your name. And that's how you need to listen to God's word. Like it has your name on it. Solomon said this, if you seek her, the word as silver, and search for her, the word of God, as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. We read it in the pastoral prayer this morning from King David's words in Psalm 19. He says, the scriptures, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the dripping of the honeycombs. Listen, I know as preachers, we're not always, quote unquote, as interesting as we should be, but it doesn't matter. Listen, if the will is being read, you don't care who's reading it. You don't care what their personality is like. You don't care what their dress like. You don't care what their voice inflections are. You just want to hear what's read. And when God's word is to be is read, that's how we are to pay attention. We are to welcome it in humility. But sadly, some will come hearing a sermon and say, well, he preached that five years ago. I remember that sermon. Well, maybe there's someone new who needs to hear it. And I never preach the same identical sermon twice, I can promise you. I go through it all over again. Or, you know, I wonder if he can teach me something new today. And there's this spirit of arrogance almost. I dare you to bless me, Pastor. I dare you to teach me something new. 
I already know that. You know why some of us are really not growing? It's because we do not receive the word in humility. We're not teachable. We're not trainable. And so while we may be growing old, we're not growing up in Christ. We're not being changed and conformed to his image. You don't automatically grow. You grow in conjunction by the Spirit of God using the Word of God. And it all depends on what kind of heart it falls on. Jesus taught that principle in the parable of the sower, that the Word, the seed, can fall on different kinds of hearts. And that's what James is teaching here, not in reference to the lost, but to those who are saved. So therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls." Now, he's speaking here of being saved. Now, the word saved, I think most of you know, is a very big word in the New Testament. There are three dimensions to the word saved, and the context must determine its meaning. He has just spoken of justification, how we were begat or made alive through the Word of God. The Spirit of God used the Word of God to bring about a second birth. So there's one aspect of salvation where you're saved from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. There's a future aspect of salvation when Jesus comes back, and the twinkling of an eye, that's faster than you can blink. We shall all be changed. Our bodies will be transformed. That's called glorification. But between those two points, there is this process of sanctification, where I'm not saved from the penalty of sin or from the presence of sin, but the power of sin. And again, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God, just as He does in justification, to accomplish this in the process of sanctification. And that's what He has in mind here, which is able to save your souls. It is a present participle in the Greek New Testament. He's speaking here of an ongoing aspect. You might, might want to write out in the margin 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Now, Peter has just said in chapter 1 the same truth that James said in James 1.18, that you were begotten or made alive by the word of truth. Peter says you were not born again of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. But then Peter, like James, moves from justification to sanctification. And so 1 Peter 2.1 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And by the way, if you're studying the Bible, you just don't read over a verse like that. You stop and say, well, what's the difference between malice and deceit and hypocrisy? And what's the difference between envy and slander? And those are all four different terms reflected accurately on English. And so if nothing else, just pull out an English dictionary. That's a sermon in itself. But the point is there's some things that have to be put away. There must be a weeding out before there can be a seeding in. Look at verse 2, 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word. Now, some think, well, this is milky truths Peter's talking about. No, he's not talking about milky truths. He's not talking about the simple truths that you give a baby Christian. In the context, he's speaking about the purity of God's Word, the unadulterated truth of God's Word. Like a baby is hungry for milk, you need to be hungry for God's Word. And if you've lost your hunger, you don't spend time with God, you don't read the Word of God, you don't long to hear it preached, it's because there's something in the heart that's plugging it. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow. Here's sanctification. By it you may grow in respect to your salvation. 
So we have to receive the word in a clean and humble heart. There must be a holy humility before the Lord, a readiness and a willingness to hear the truth. Otherwise, it's like water falling on a rock instead of water falling on soft soil. God wants to do something from the inside out. Now, there's a third word. He gave us the word first. Before the sermon, so to speak, we remove certain things. He tells us what to do during the sermon. Now he moves in that we receive the word. Now he removes to what we're to do after the sermon. We are to respond. We are to respond to the word in obedience. Now look at verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, when James talks about being a doer of the word, he uses the word poetis. You can hear our word poetry. It comes from Greek into Latin, directly into English as poetry or of a poet. He's talking here about creatively serving the Lord with all your heart in the same way that a poet would put his heart into a poem as he writes it. He's not talking about obeying the word with a bad attitude, doing the bare minimum while I'll just do barely what I need to do. But he's talking about giving God your best. He is not just saying, just do it. He's saying, do it with all your heart. That's the great commandment. That's the Shema. He's talking about people here who are not just hearers. And interesting, the word for hearer was used in the first century of an auditor, someone who would audit a course, so to speak, or some great teacher. And in the Roman culture of James' day, there were many people who would attend a lecture not to become a disciple of the one giving the lecture, but just to be an auditor. Before I went to seminary, while I was still a campus pastor at Duke University, I took my very first course in Greek in 1981. And it was there in Duke Divinity School. They let campus pastors do it there for free. And I said, why not? And so I audited New Testament Greek first year. I was the most relaxed guy in the class. Everybody else was sweating bullets. Why? Because they had constant quizzes and tests and midterms and finals and papers, but I had none. But you see, the problem with auditors is they never graduate. And many of God's people just audit God's Word with no real intention to obey it and to apply it. And you see it in many respects. There are people who come even to churches like this who have no intention of ever joining a church. They don't want to join a church. They want to date a church. (laughs) They don't want to join a church because they don't want the responsibilities and the commitment that comes with membership. There are some people who maybe have even come to know Christ, but they don't want to follow through with baptism. Now, let me just say, in the context of this passage, there are many Christians who audit sermons, but with no real intention of obeying it. How do I know? Because if you ask them, a guy did his doctoral dissertation on this very subject, and he went to a number of leading evangelical churches, and he interviewed people two hours after the sermon, and the percentage of the people who understood what the sermon was about was just alarming. And some of us, when this sermon is over, the notes are in the trash. We don't give it another thought because we're just auditing. We have no intention of letting this 
change our life. And again, not everyone who grows old grows up. And there are people who come Sunday after Sunday and they even mark up their Bibles, but there's no real life change. And so they are deluded. They are thinking they are spiritually mature, but they're really not. And so look at this phrase, prove yourselves doers of the Word. By the way, that's a present tense, and it comes out in different translations differently, but he's basically saying continue to be doers of the Word. Keep on obeying the message. If you want to be able to practice your faith like a practicing doctor or a practicing nurse, you can't simply audit the course. You've got to get your hands dirty. You have to get involved and obey what God says. Otherwise, we delude ourselves. And we are the losers because we miss what God really has for us. A.W. Tozer wrote in his little short book, The Root of Righteousness, these words. Listen. He said, there is an evil under the sun. It is the glaring disparity between theology and practice among professing Christians. So wide is the gulf that separates theory from practice that an intelligent observer of people who heard the Sunday morning sermon and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who have heard it would conclude that he had been examining two distinct and contrary religions. It appears that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but are not willing to endure the inconveniences of being right. And that's not what God wants for us. So he says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. So having given an introduction, then an exhortation, he now moves to an illustration, James's illustration. And it's found here in verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So James is saying, if we're only auditors towards God's word and not doers, we're like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and he immediately forgot what he is like. And James's illustration is very important because he wants us to look in the mirror of God's Word in a particular way. So he really underscores three truths. There are some people just, they only glance at the Word. They only glance at the Word, point A there in your outline. In Greek, most of you know because you've been here long enough. Some of you are brand new to the faith. But there are two words that come into the English text for man. There's the word anthropos that speaks of mankind. And so now in the new NASB uh, 2020, that again will come out next month, they'll put the word people. Or if brethren is in, in reference not just to males, but brothers and sisters, they'll put and sisters in italics. Well, there's the word man from the word anthropos, giving us our word anthropology. And it's a generic word, and it includes men and women alike. But there's another word for man in the New Testament, and it's the Greek word arnir. And it specifically refers to someone of the male sex. Do you know which word he uses here? He uses the latter word, arnir. He is talking about how a literal physical man looks at himself in the mirror. Why? Because those of us who are of the male gender are a perfect illustration of how we are not to look into God's Word. 
A man tends to just glance at the mirror, where a woman tends to, she gazes. She looks much more intently. I can get ready real quickly for church, but I need to make sure, let's see, the zipper's up. You know, that's embarrassing for a preacher. The buttons are down, tie is straight, no shaving cream in the air. But a woman, well, it's a little more involved. See, my tendency is just to glance. A man looks in a mirror and says, yeah, that's me. And a woman looks in a mirror and she says, oh, my. A guy looks in the mirror and not too bad. And a woman looks, I can't believe that's me. I mean, you just count the number of pieces of machinery it takes a woman to get ready. and You can understand the big difference. And we don't mind it all. We love it as long as we're not waiting in the car for such a d- dear woman. By the way, God made us male and female. That's something that our culture wants to deny. That's something that the current administration this week by executive order is trying to erase and with an appointee who is a transgender person. And this, Listen, you need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our vice president. They're both lost. I hope you don't think they're saved. How can someone who sanctions, and again with another executive order and statement this week, the murder of little babies in the womb, how can someone herald perversion and say that they have a regenerate mind? Oh, they're religious. They went to church. A lot of religious lost people. Some Christians, they read and study the Word of God, and they're just like a man who looks in the mirror. They glance. Point B, they quickly forget the Word. They forget the Word. Look at verse 24. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So James is teaching that because someone just glances at the Word and does not really see the Word. He doesn't really remember even what he's heard. And that was critical in the first century because unless you were someone like the Ethiopian eunuch who had a tremendous amount of money and could buy your own personal scroll, it was essential that when you came to church, the public reading of Scripture not be neglected because that was the one way you were typically going to get it. And so if you just glance, you forget what you hear. So you need to take a hard look, blemishes and all, whatever you see in the mirror of God's Word. Now, there's two ways in our day to see yourself. One would be in a picture, so to speak, or the other in a mirror. They didn't have the opportunity, obviously, of a photograph in his day, but they could look in a mirror. You know, years ago, we used to go to Olin Mills. These young families have no idea how blessed they are that they don't have to do something like that. You know, we carry these handheld computers in our pocket, and we can take pictures better than anything they could produce. And sometimes we would go because you had to go back to get your quote-unquote free photo, and you'd look at the proofs, and man, you say, man, that doesn't look too good. But, you know, they pressure you, and they con you into buying at least something. And then you get the pictures back and say, man, I look pretty good in that. Why? Because they've doctored it up. (laughs) They've taken out all the blemishes. God's Word, when you look hard into it, 
It will show you blemishes in all. It's like looking at your soul and you will see dirt and filth. So sometimes Christians hear the word and they only glance. And so they quickly forget. And typically, therefore, they fail to obey the word. They fail to obey it. God is saying here through the Apostle James that when you look carefully into the Bible, not just a brief glance at it, but when you look intently into it, you will not forget what kind of person you are. And so your tendency then will be to say, oh, Lord, you have spoken to me today. As if I were the only person in the auditorium, you spoke to my heart today. And I want to obey what you've shown me. So notice the contrast here in verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now notice how he refers to God's law as the perfect law. And it's perfect because it is teleos, it is complete, it lacks nothing. It is the revelation of God Almighty. And referring to it as law, the scripture as law, he is underscoring its authoritative nature. In addition, notice he calls it the law of liberty. You see, when you understand the Bible to be perfect and complete, the revelation of God, then you will find it to be the law of liberty when you obey it. It just puts a joy in your soul. It puts a spring in your step. It puts a smile on your face. It puts a freedom in your spirit, and you're changed, and you love it, and you want more. People say, well, you know, I'm free to do whatever I want. When I hear a sermon, I'm free to do whatever I want. You're absolutely free to do whatever you want. You can do anything you want. And that's the new motto of today, you know, all kinds of trash. Love is love. I'm free. My wife had to instruct me. I didn't know what love is love is. And she gave me the bottom line and the backstory behind this new phrase pagans are using. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Yes, you can. You are free to do whatever you want, but you are not free to escape the consequences. Next time someone tells you that, bring them up on the roof of your house and say, why don't you jump off? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Jump off. You're free to do whatever you want, but you're not free to escape the law of gravity. I don't like that law. I don't understand that law. My friend, when you hit the ground, you will have full comprehension. You see, you are free to choose, but you are not free to escape the consequences of that choice. So King David said, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So he's given us a foundation by giving us this introduction. He gives us this exhortation, followed by an illustration. Now let's conclude with James' application. How do I know if God's Word is falling like rain on a marble slab or like rain on fertile soil? How do I know if God's Word is really truly changing my life? Well, let me give you the Apostle James three applications in the form of three questions. Question number one, can I control my tongue? 
can I control my tongue? Now, we find in verses 26 and 27 a test application where he gives us three proof positives that we are truly being changed by what we are hearing. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. You see, the tongue reveals the heart. That's why Jesus said, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And if the heart is right, the speech will be right. When we come to chapter 3, he is going to expound this in great detail. If you don't like conviction, don't come that week, because we'll be convicted all over. But you see, some people measure spirituality by, quote-unquote, speaking in tongues. A question came in the Bible line just a week or so ago about speaking in tongues. And I often remind people, that's no mark of spirituality, the most carnal, disobedient, rebellious church in the New Testament expressed that gift repeatedly, a first century gift. Spirituality in Paul's mind, and certainly here in James' theology, was not whether or not you speak in tongues, but how you handle that one little two-inch piece of flesh in your head. And so the first proof is, can I control my tongue? If I am growing more and more and more like Christ in my speech, then the Word is having an impact. Secondly, do I have a concern for others? Do I have a concern for others? Look at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. For the first few years I was a Christian, I thought, what, in ver- what on earth does that have to do with me? I don't have a clue. James is talking about here someone who visits widows and orphans, that he has the genuine item? Not necessarily. Keep in mind, James is not telling people, first of all, that if they want to enter the kingdom of God, they do it by visiting orphans and widows. Remember, he's speaking contextually to my beloved brethren, to people who are already saved. In addition, he's speaking to a culture that was covered over in orphans and widows. There were zero government programs, and much of the compassion, if any, were going to be shown. It was typically shown by the body of Christ. But James is saying, among other things, first of all, those who visit. And by the way, the word here for visit is not a Greek word for a social visit. There's another word like that. The word that he uses here is someone who comes with a view towards helping. Orphans and widows. People that you would help who could give nothing back to you. In other words, you're not doing the get. You're doing it purely out of compassion. We're not a culture covered over in these United States with orphans and widows, so we have some. But James is saying, listen, when you give of your time, maybe it's serving little children in the nursery who, quote-unquote, can't repay you though you're blessed when you help them, or when you use your gifts and your talents in the church and there's no financial remuneration, or you come and you give the first 10% of what God has increased, and you expect nothing in return, no expectations. James is saying that kind of concern is the genuine item. That's what the gospel does. It changes people from the inside out. Are you willing to help people who can't pay you back? 
And God would say, because that's what I did when I gave my son. You could never pay me back. So can I control my tongue? Do I have a concern for others? Third, am I living cleaner, clean in a dirty world? Am I living clean in a dirty world? Let's read all of verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Then he adds, to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, what precisely does that mean? Well, the word world is translated, it's the word cosmos, and it's used in different ways in different contexts in the New Testament, much like various English words. But most of the time, interestingly, when you say the word cosmos, it's not referring just to the mass of humanity, like God so loved the world he gave his son, but it's speaking of the ungodly moral value system that pagans are postulating. And so John will say, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world's passing away. And so he's basically saying that someone who has the Word of God operating in their life is they are learning progressively to keep themselves unstained by the world. In other words, the world's value system is not shaping you. Now, it's easy to rationalize. It's easy to say, well, you know, why should I help that person? He's just lazy. He's just getting what he deserves. Or orphans, well, you know, uh, let the government take care of them. Or there's so many in the world. My wife and I have been involved with Compassion International for 40 years. There's a never-ending number of orphans that you could care for. I have one relative who has 10 kids with compassion. Too many can't do anything. Widows, well, you know, Paul does say certain widows should be on the list. Not every widow, but some should be on the list, and the church should take care of them. That's not my problem. And James is just asking, look, How do you know the Word of God is really working in your life? One, it affects your speech. Two, it affects your compassion. And third, it brings purity of life. You're living cleaner and cleaner in a world that is getting dirtier and dirtier. To put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In other words, we're like a movie. Paul said we are to be a living epistle. People ought to be able to see our lives so radically changing and progressing they realize we have a relationship with the living God. That's the promise of the new covenant. The new deal, you know, our Bible is divided into the Old Testament, diathike, covenant, the old covenant, and the new covenant. That's the second half of the Bible. The Old Testament was looking forward to the new covenant because what was lost in the Garden of Eden, Christ is able to restore. So in speaking to the nation of Israel in two critical passages, one Ezekiel, the other Jeremiah, referenced in the New Testament as having fulfillment not just for the Jew, but for Gentiles in this age, but ultimately fulfilled in the Jew. He said, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your land. 
And if you read that section of scripture, he's not just talking about those who are up in Babylon and he's from the nations, plural, from the four corners of the world, God says he's going to gather the Jews. And he's been doing that in an unprecedented way. And God says he'll do that at the end of time. First, there's going to be a physical regathering which tells you we are approaching the end of the age because God says he'll do that at the latter time before Messiah comes. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. There has to be a physical regathering before there can be a spiritual renewal. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. That's what a new birth does. It changes you. Jeremiah has just called this a new covenant and then he adds, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. Why? Because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Listen, to be born from above, you have to have your sin forgiven. You have to have an imputed righteousness a righteousness that replaces your unrighteousness. And God does it on the basis of cross, the cross, the one who knew no sin became sin. And he imputes on the merits of Christ's death a righteousness to your account such that for the first time ever, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. And my friend, when he does, everything changes. Things are never the same. Now, when he comes to live inside of you, you become a babe in Christ. And your response to the word of God will determine whether or not you mature in Christ. Now, listen, if you're here today, God wants to remember your sin no more. You say, does he have amnesia? No. He knows every wicked thing I have ever done or could do. And all sin is wickedness. But he doesn't hold it against me. He'll bury your sin in the deepest sea. He'll remove it as far as the east is from the west. And he'll put the Spirit of God in you. I just baptized someone who on Thursday night came and said, I'm not sure I'm saved. And I want to get it right. I don't know where you are today, but if you're not sure you're saved, typically it means you're not. I mean, how can you be made alive and regenerated by the Spirit and the love of God have been poured out in your heart and become a new creation and not know it? But some of us, we've crossed that line maybe years ago. And there are people who will come to this church once and only once, Christian people, because they don't want any longer than a 20-minute sermon. And they're not here to grow. They're here to be entertained. But some of you are serious. 
but you don't want to just go through the motions. You want to make sure things are right. You want the Word of God to go through your life so that you're changed and shaped by it for the glory of God. Now, our Father, we thank You today for the opportunity to examine this portion of Scripture. But in James's words, as we often recite them, help us not just to be those who hear, but those who are willing to obey. So take the truth today. Help us with King David to pray. Examine my heart, O God. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And help me to be properly related to the only book you've ever written. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.